It's Snowpocalypse 2014 in Northern Virginia, but that's not shutting us down. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show, folks. I am David Hansen. We've got an outstanding interview for you today. Last Thursday, Matt had the opportunity to sit down with Michael Mobison, the head of Global Financial Strategies at Credit Suisse and the author of a bunch of books on the behavioral side of investing. I'm here today with Michael Mobison, Managing Director and Head of Global Financial Strategies at Credit Suisse, also the author of numerous investing books, including More Than You Know and The Success Equation. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure to be with you, Matt. Well, let, let me start out way back when, when I got my hands on More Than You Know. It, it, it changed a lot of the way that I felt about investing. One of the things that I thought was really interesting is you bring a very multidisciplinary approach to investing, and it reminds me a lot of the way Charlie Munger goes about it. Did, have you gotten a lot of your influence from Munger and the way he approaches? Absolutely, and very directly. So, of course, I'm a big Warren Buffett fan. I think as most people are, and a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder. <laughs> but for me, in many ways, Charlie Munger's been more influential. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think the metaphor he uses is that of a toolbox. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you, if you have one tool in your toolbox, say a screwdriver, you're going to do a great job with screws. But when you're faced with different types of problems, you're unlikely to be as successful. So he says, hey, build out your toolbox. Learn from different disciplines. Learn the big ideas. So when you're faced with a problem, you can go to your toolbox and have the right tool to apply to the right problem. So it's this whole mental models approach, which requires reading across different disciplines. And I always like to say, it's, it's obviously fun to do. There are a lot of intellectual cul-de-sacs, but when you do face a problem that, that you've got a solution for, it's really exciting, and I think it gives you a really exciting dash of insight. Now, in terms of pulling tools from that toolbox, <clears throat> one of the ones that Charlie Munger really likes and has emphasized a lot is knowledge of st statistics. And I see a lot of that in your work. Do you think that's one of the one of the key things that somebody needs to be a good investor? I think there's no question. You know, good investing requires a few basic things, accounting, understanding core things about business. But statistics, I think, statistics I think is incredibly helpful. And by the way, it's not natural for us. I think most of us really uh, relate much more to stories and storytelling. Mm -hmm. So as a consequence, if I'm telling you a story, it's going to have a lot more salience for you than statistics. But stepping back, thinking about the, the use of statistics, and for example, base rates and understanding businesses, what's happened before, what that, what's it likely to mean for what's going to happen in the future, I think is incredibly helpful. So you need to learn the basics. And it, by the way, you don't have to go to the high fancy stuff, <laughs> but just the basics can be extraordinarily helpful to clarify your thinking and thinking about the future. Okay, going from there to what you are just talking about with storytelling, now, there's, there's a lot of story stocks. There, there's a lot to, to understand, I think, the, the narrative part of a business and a strategy. What are some ways that investors can avoid uh, going into pitfalls by following that narrative part of the story? One of the constructs I love the best on this is what Danny Kahneman calls the inside versus the outside view. And so what it, you know, when you're faced with a problem, all of us, for example, stock or investment idea or even planning into the future, the natural way for us to think is to gather a bunch of information, combine it with our own puts, and, and plan into the future. And by the way, stories can be very powerful in sort of uh, developing that theme. Mm -hmm. What he argues is better is something called the outside view, which is saying rather than thinking about my specific circumstances in this story, let me think about this as an instance of a larger reference class. Like what happened when other people were in this situation before? So you might say a story stock, you know, there's some explosive growth expectations. You might say, hey, are there other story stocks that, that were in similar situations before? And ask you, what happened? How did the movie end? So this idea of the outside view, I think, can be very useful and sort of, sort of tempering, especially the enthusiasm for these kinds of things by referring to base rates. So that combines sort of two things. Mm -hmm. One is the, the behavioral stuff and also appealing to statistics to some degree to help inform your view. Okay, 
And, and some of your more recent work, or, or a lot of your more recent work, has looked at the difference between skill and luck in everything from sports to investing to business. When you're thinking about being an investor and, and building skill as being an investor, one, one of the things we've heard, and Malcolm Gladwell has talked a little bit about this, is 10 years of deliberate practice. What would be, what, what are ways that investors can go about doing deliberate practice and, and gaining that experience? This is a super interesting question because I actually think the deliberate practice model can be somewhat misleading for investing or really any exercise that's probabilistic. So what's the key for deliberate practice? It works in domains where your outcome is very indicative of your skill. Mm -hmm. So if I want to know if you're a good tennis player, Matt, or a good piano player, right? If I know something about the that, question on both. <laughs> I can watch you or listen to you, and if I know what I'm doing, I can judge that. And in fact, as you, as you progress, if you have a good coach or a teacher, they can help you get better. So that's where the deliberate practice, the 10,000 hour stuff really works well. But as you slide over and introduce more luck and more probabilities, it becomes much more difficult. So I'll give you a very simple example. Let's say now you go to Atlantic City to play blackjack. Well, there's standard strategy and you could play correctly and lose for a short period of time, or you could play foolishly and win. Mm -hmm. So there's a disconnect between, in a sense, your skill and the outcomes. So as a consequence, what I argue is you need to have a process. Mm -hmm. And for me, an investing process, to your point, has three specific components. One, let's call it analytical, which is you know, being able to analyze financial statements, understanding future cash flows, all the sort of analytical tools that we all need to succeed. The second I'm going to call behavioral, mm -hmm. which is we all tend to fall for certain types of mistakes, patterns of mistakes, learning about those things and trying to manage or mitigate them yourself. And the third I'm going to call organizational. Maybe less relevant for an individual, although it has some applicability for individuals as well, but certainly mm -hmm. organizationally. What's going on in your company or in your environment that allows you to be either more successful or less successful. So all three of those factors, I think, are really important. What you're trying to do is be as effective as you can across all those. Be a good analytical investor to minim minimize your behavioral mistakes and then be in a, an environment that's conducive to making good long-term decisions. Okay. That, that, the process versus outcome that you, that you talk about, that was one of the real eurekas that I got from a lot of your work. What is, if those, if, if that's, those are the tools that you need to build your process, What's the best way to go about evaluating your process once you have a process in place? Extremely difficult, but you know, there are certain things you want to look for. One is that something that you can repeat over time. So that's one, so one so the, the idea of reliability, that it can be repeated. The second is you want to make sure that it's economically sound, right? So we know that it's based on some foundational things that are very good. So those to me are the, you know, the, the main things to be looking for. And then you want to um, uh, keep track of the kinds of decisions you've made so you can see how effective you've been. So for example, if you think about, I, I'm thinking about a stock and I think about probabilities of outcomes. So I might say, hey, there's a, a small chance something good will happen, an average chance not much will happen, and there's a small chance something bad will happen. Do that over time for lots of different stocks and keep track. It'll give yourself quality feedback about how good you are and how well calibrated you are making those kinds of judgments. So it's a tricky one to answer, and I think evaluating processes in investing is a difficult thing to do, but a couple things on reliability, mm -hmm. on economics, and then sort of keep track and monitor yourself and give yourself that kind of feedback. So keeping an investing journal would be the kind of thing that would help you out with that? An investing journal actually doesn't take much time, but it does take a fair bit of discipline. And I think if you do one of these things, uh, you know, it's a little bit disconcerting because you look back in your journal and you start to realize... <laughs> you see you know, what you don't want to yeah, see. <laughs> did I, could I have believed that before? Because what the natural thing for all of us is that once once the world unfolds in front of us, we have hindsight bias, right? Which is we start to believe that we knew what was going to happen with a greater probability than we did. And the second thing that happened is called creeping determinism, which is you start to believe that what happened is the only thing that could have happened. Right. right? And the reason is you now have the facts. So your mind is quick to sort of put it all together. 
So fighting hindsight bias, fighting creeping determinism, investment journals are really effective in doing that. And also, I mentioned before, it helps you understand how well calibrated you are. So if you, if you think a high probability event's gonna happen, if it happens a lot, well, then you're pretty well calibrated. But you know, if you say something's gonna only happen 20% of the time, it should happen one out of five times. And you know, that, keeping track of those kinds of things takes a little bit of discipline. It mm -hmm. doesn't take a lot of time or cost, but it takes discipline, and I think it can be extraordinarily helpful. Now, you just mentioned blackjack a little bit before. In, in, in some of your, your recent work, you talked about uh, people playing poker and finding the right venues to play poker. It reminded me that when I've done well playing poker, it's generally been an off-strip casinos. <laughs> uh, it, I, now, I'm not a very good poker player, so that's mainly why. In terms of finding the, the pools that investors can, can fish in, you, you talked about where institutional investors might want to look, which makes sense given your, your position. Where might uh, individual investors want to look if they want to try to gain an advantage? Right, so really you want to go where you think less there are other, fewer people are participating or people that are not as skillful as you are. So that's the basic idea. It's actually a very difficult game uh, to play. Uh, by the way, I should, I'll, I'll tell you a really quick story on this because I love this. Uh, where, where I got this idea or, or crystallized for me was a guy named Jim Rudd who used to be the CEO of Network Solutions. Mm -hmm. and he talked about playing poker when he was a young man. and He was you know, probably so, a lot better than <laughs> I am. <laughs> you know, by day he would you know, learn about the different probabilities and look for poker tells and how to you know, pot odds and all that stuff. And by night he would play. Mm -hmm. And you know, so he got, and he played in progressively tougher games, won some, some lost a little. And eventually his uncle pulled him aside and said, Jim, it's, it's time to be less worried about getting better and more worried about finding easy games, right? So yeah. this is a really important lesson for investors because there are two key things. One is basic proficiency, mm -hmm. so some things we talked about in terms of process a moment ago, but second is finding those games. So um, there might be other things that might be interesting. For example, uh, areas less developed markets, so mm -hmm. emerging markets or even frontier markets might be an interesting example. So frontier markets are a, a place where uh, institutions it's not big enough for institutions to participate, really, mm -hmm. right? Because there's not enough scale for it. But that might be a place where an individual might be able to uh, make it worthwhile. So, the, the, you know, some areas like that. The other one I'll say that's a, a tough, tough one to find, though, is when there are institutional constraints. When people are doing things on the other side of the trade because they have to. Mm -hmm. So one example, or they have to, or they they're tend, they want to. One example is spinoffs. You know, spinoffs, there's a nice literature on this for 25 years. Often, big institutions just sell off the spinoff components they get in their portfolios. They want nothing to do with them. Mm -hmm. They're often small, a little bit messy. That also might be something that might be an interesting opportunity for an individual to say, I can step into that, get on the other side of those big institutions, and actually do well. And there's some good evidence that over time, spinoffs have been a very nice, profitable strategy. Okay. In, in, in a recent piece of yours, you broke apart the sort of two co main components of price-to-earnings ratio, the, the P-E ratio that everybody talks about. W one of the things that you said was that a lot of investors don't use discounted cash flow models, which is a way to value a stock, but just about everybody uses the P-E, but they're not really using it correctly. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Now, the first thing I'll say is, you know, the value of any financial asset, whether it's a bond or a stock or real estate, doesn't make any difference, is always the present value of future cash flows. And I don't mm -hmm. think anybody would disagree with that. I mean, it's very foundational. Yet in the investing world, equities world in particular, we use a lot of shorthands, you pointed out. So price earnings, multiple price of the stock divided by earnings, usually next year's earnings. That's a shorthand that almost everybody uses. Sometimes a little more sophisticated people talk about enterprise value to EBITDA, earnings before interest taxes. It's the same basic concept, right? These, yeah. Now the key, first thing I'll say is these are shorthands for the actual valuation process. They're not valuation. They're mm -hmm. shorthands for the process, right? So what's good about shorthands? They're quick. Right. What's bad about shorthands, they sometimes have biases. So what I want to do there is say, let me just take a big step back and say, if you're thinking about a PE multiple, what is really foundational here? What do we really know? 
And there was, a, you know, I went back to the most seminal paper on valuation, you know, written by two academics in the early 1960s, where they said, hey, you can think about the value of a business in two pieces. One is what they called the steady state value. So this is what the business would be worth if they had the current earnings today and, and did it forever. So one way you might think about that is say, let's say McDonald's never built a new restaurant. Mm -hmm. Just McDonald's, the, only the restaurants they have today are all you'll ever see. What would that be worth, right? So you, you assume that they can earn what they're earning now for a pretty long time. The second component these academics talked about was what they called future value creation, which is the, value, the investments that will earn excess returns in the future. So in the McDonald's example, you might say, these would be the stores they'll build in the future that will create value. Okay. So, they're, 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 so both of these things together is a total value of the company. So what's, what's cool about this is we can take the steady state value and then we can figure out the PE multiple that should be attributed to that piece. Mm -hmm. And then we can figure out you know, uh, if, the, if the P is above that, what is being attributed to the future. So to be concrete, roughly on current interest rates and equity risk premium, the, the base steady state P multiple is about 12 and a half times. Mm -hmm. So if you are looking at a stock that's trading over 12 and a half times, what that implies is you're paying something for future value creation. And then the question becomes, how much are you paying? Is that a reasonable thing to pay? So I just think it's an extraordinarily useful framework for mm -hmm. thinking about what those PE multiples mean and the relative contributions from sort of what we've got in the bank versus what's on the come. Okay, and, and in terms of that valuing that growth component of it, that's where interest rates can come into that and, and all that kind of stuff as well. So you've got a lot of different moving parts in there as well. Is that correct? Well, in the value creation piece, there are really three big things, right? Because things like interest rates and equity or supreme are very difficult to predict. So, mm -hmm. so the three big things are, one is what will the returns be on incremental investments? Mm -hmm. So am I gonna invest in something very high returns, sort of market returns or below the cost of capital returns. Mm -hmm. The second component is how much money can I invest? So sometimes you can have small spreads above the cost, but you can do a lot. Other times you have high spreads, but you can't do that much. So how much you invest. And the third component is for how long you can find investment opportunities, right? Because it's a finite world and there's a lot of competition. Mm -hmm. So the idea, how long can I find investments that are profitable in this way? So return on invested capital is the first component. The second component is the amount of investment, and the third is this time horizon component. So those are the three things that comprise that present value of future uh, growth. Okay. Now, I, I focus a lot on financial companies and banks, and usually in that sort of thing, there's a disclaimer of, for non-financial companies, would this would the same kind of analysis work for a bank or a financial company? Yeah, it would. Yeah, I think it's always, <laughs> I usually put those disclaimers in myself. <laughs> and I think for banks, we tend to use less PEs. Well, you, you're, you're the expert, not me, but less on multiples <laughs> and more on things like price to book. And, and mm -hmm. reason because book value for a bank is mark to market. So, mm -hmm. it, uh, you know, you presume that that asset value is something that is current in, mm -hmm. in terms of the, the values. But the, the, the ideas are the same, no no question. So okay. if, if you're earning, same thing, banks have current activities if they keep doing them, you know, what are the things they can do in the future? And that could be expanding, for example, your retail bank franchise, it could be expanding your loan book in some other part of the world, what have you. So those, okay. those, those concepts would still apply, maybe a little trickier, but I think they, they would apply. Okay, and just while we're on the subject, the, that disclaimer in general, in thinking about a, a bank or a financial company, is it is it that much is it that much different? I mean, thinking about a guy like Buffett um, mm -hmm. and Berkshire owns Wells Fargo as its biggest holding, mm -hmm. and he's thinking about that in terms of its franchise franchise value. So there are kind of you know an overlap between something like a McDonald's. 
No question, Matt. And I would just say that, you know, going back to the first principles, present value, future cash flows, mm -hmm. that we can say is fairly universal. Sure. Any asset class, any sector in the economy, what have you. Okay. So you're right. And I think that, I think that the, the reason we often say, you know, the disclaimer <laughs> is because the nature of the accounting is slightly different and right. sure. the role of debt, for example, is quite different, right? Mm -hmm. So debt is often considered to be almost like a raw material for a right. bank. So we look at instead of typically in our cash flow models, instead of a, a free cash flow discounted back to the firm value, for banks or insurance companies, usually equity cash flows dis discounted back to an equity value. So, so the there are some differences in the details, mm -hmm. but the basic concept, the big picture concept, absolutely is, is the same thing. Okay, and as long as we're on Buffett, <laughs> Moats uh, can't talk about Buffett without uh, Moats. And you had a great piece recently on on evaluating Moats. And one of the things you did is broke it down into three uh, three component uh, parts, sort of. That there was a or this was for a competitive advantage, I mm -hmm. guess it was. So there was the uh, process advantage, the consumer advantage, and then there was, I forget what you called it, but it was the government basically advantage if mm -hmm. there's a government protection there. Mm -hmm. uh, can you explain the, the basics of these and how they give one business an advantage over its competitor? Sure, and there might even be an easier way to say this, would be work done by Michael Porter. And I think most of these people sort of align sure. to the same thing. So Michael Porter says there's sort of two generic ways to get a competitive advantage. One might be low, one would be low cost producer, and we call that a process advantage. So mm -hmm. low cost producer means, hey, we can produce this good or service cheaper than everybody else, mm -hmm. and it's of you know reasonable quality, so it's not like it's totally horrible, and then we can go into the market that way. So when you think about low cost producers, you know, you typically think about things like Walmart and retail, you might think about Southwest Airlines and airlines. So people coming in that way. By the way, just to be a little sophisticated for a second, often the way they do that is by having very rapid capital velocity. So mm -hmm. they're, they're not making a lot on margins, but they're able to use their capital very efficiently. Sure. The second generic way to get to competitive advantage is so-called differentiation. Mm -hmm. So that means you're, you're you have typically higher than average prices and you're okay on cost, but your, your key is that you're differentiating yourself. So you might think mm -hmm. about luxury goods, for example. Tiffany's, that's the, the first Tiffany's, thing that Tiffany's is, mind, yeah. should, and that should pop into your mind, but you think about luxury automobiles or what have you. So they're charging a higher price, you're willing to pay it for whatever reason. Again, their costs have to be competitive and that can allow them to sort of uh, satisfy this interesting niche. So those are the two generic um, ways to get competitive edge. Now, one of the things I'll say is an interesting sort of side note is, technology seems to be coming along and busting a lot of this stuff, which is, hmm. it used to be the case that you want to be one or the other, but now c companies are coming along and they're actually quite effective on number number of fronts. So technology is allowing companies to deliver good or services in a very customized way, which would be typical or consistent with differentiation strategy, and do that on a very low cost basis. So you can think about a retailer like Amazon.com, mm -hmm. and, and we were talking about books before we came yeah. on air, but but you know these guys know pretty well what you like to read and what you're like, likely to read next. They know better than and I do, I they think. Know, <laughs> they often know better than you do, and they can deliver it to you very cost effectively, either, either electronically or even in a fiscal version. So that's also a very interesting set of developments, is how is technology even uh, affecting these two typical uh, categories that we typically we, we talk about for competitive advantage. Okay, and, and then the, the third bucket, the, the government bucket, if it's an industry or company that's protected by regulation or something else like that, just from your perspective as an investor, I guess, is that an advantage that you'd want to rely on versus the other two? It, it seems less, maybe less durable. Yeah, I would feel less comfortable with it. Now, there's some categories like things like patents where, you know, patents are explicitly were set up and as a, as a way to compensate people for taking risks. So that would fall into well, the government. That would be sort of in the government bucket and, and licenses and those kinds of things. But to your point, whenever you have things that are related to government actions on, you know, uh, taxes or what have you, you mm -hmm. have to be very careful. It's because obviously you're subject to, to, to the vagaries of government policies and the whims of government policies to some degree. So yeah, I'd much rather see th that aspect. I mean, 
patents are obviously fine. Let's see less of that aspect as a, as a, as a main driver of your investment thesis and more one of those two generic strategies we talked about. Okay. It, another one of your uh, recent works it regarded forming good teams and, and well-functioning teams. And one of the things that I was just thinking about from a, from a bigger picture perspective is for an individual investor, for instance, is it wise to, to have a team investment approach, to have uh, people that they're sharing their investments with and helping them make those investment decisions, or are they better off on their own? It depends, right? <laughs> no, that's one of those classic, uh, it depends. You know, there's actually been a really a nice amount of work done on uh, investment uh, clubs. Mm -hmm. So it's not, not really a little bit further than just having a bunch of people, but investment clubs. And that work was done by Brooke Harrington. And what she found in studying this is that all men groups and all women groups didn't do as well as combined gender groups. Mm. And the premise behind that was that these combined groups were able to extract more diversity, right? So they were able to get more different, more differing points of views on the table, and that actually really enhanced their decision making. So going back to your, your question, the key to an effective team is to have diversity of thought, so mm -hmm. cognitive diversity, to allow that diversity to, to rise to the surface, right? So it's not just having the information, but also talking about that information. So if you can find some friends as an individual investor who can help you, you know, sort of counterbalance you and when you're overly optimistic to bring you down a little bit, when you're pessimistic to you bring you up, that can be extremely valuable. Now, there's also evidence, there have been studies of this, that some people can do this themselves in their own head. So mm -hmm. they have the little diversity in their own minds. They've got these old, their own movies playing. So, but, but the idea is this notion of diversity is, is clearly what is, what is the essential ingredient to making those good decisions. So whether, if you can generate yourself, that's awesome. Okay. But if, if you need to tap or you can tap into another group of people to help you do that, that too, is, uh, that too is great. But finding a bunch of people that agree with you already is probably a bad idea. It's, it's not probably, it is a good <laughs> it's it's a a bad, idea. It's a very bad idea. Uh, now in terms of, uh, that kind of hits again on the, the behavioral mistakes people make. And, and again, uh, when I read uh, More Than You Know, uh, that was 2006, right? Mm -hmm. and, and to me, that was one of the first books that, that for me brought the behavioral part to the, to the fore. There was a lot of academic work done before. Do you think between then and now, the, the wave of behavioral investing books and, and, and knowledge that's come to the market, has that helped people or are they still making the same mistakes? It's a super interesting question and I think that the jury's out on that. I mean, clearly more people are aware of these behavioral issues than they were, as you pointed out, even 10 years ago and mm -hmm. certainly 15 years ago. But it's not crystal clear that that's helped people make better decisions. You know, so even in organizations where you talk about these ideas, unless you really have specific ways to, to manage these problems or mitigate these problems, uh, the knowledge in and of itself, or even the language in and of itself, doesn't appear to be doesn't appear to be all that you need. So I think that's actually a bit of a frustration of a lot of these pioneers in decision making and even the behavioral stuff, which is they've been able to unearth all these very interesting issues, um, and I think they genuinely want to help the world, mm -hmm. but they've they've struggled. Now there's one area where it seems to have worked quite well, and that is this work on uh, you know choice architecture, nudge. You know, okay. Cass Sunstein mm -hmm. and, and Richard Thaler wrote a great book on this. So and even in some public policy practices. Uh, they've been able to implement defaults, for example, sure. that tend to be good. And even in my company, I suspect many other companies are like this, there are defaults now for how much you save, you sure. know, it goes into your 401k, and those defaults are set quite high. So if you do nothing, you're going to save a lot, which is probably a good thing. So only, only by telling them that you don't want to save so much will you come off of that number. That, those are the kinds of things that are almost uh, ingrained into the system that I think can be very helpful. But for, for our day-to-day -day in our own organizations or, or as individuals, um, I think the, the jury's out that it's really, it's done, the awareness is up, but I'm mm -hmm. not sure it's changed behaviors meaningfully. 
Is that the kind of thing that could be helped by a, a checklist, or is it still the checklist could be there, but your your brain just overrides it? I think there's no question the checklist helps, and and I and I and I guess the evidence for that is wherever checklists have been implemented, you know, with fidelity, they've mm -hmm. improved outcomes, and you know, clearly. Listen, you would never get on a plane. I don't think any of us would have gone to get on a commercial plane without the pilot having gone through his or her checklist in great detail. You know, that is now much more prevalent in medicine and certainly even before any sort of procedure or operation. Those checklists have been very, very effective. And we've seen their incredible and fairly recent case studies on how that's worked. You know, the world of investing is a little bit more tricky because it's not as procedural. You know, mm -hmm. if you're a pilot, there are certain procedures you need to go through and it's going to be pretty much the same every single time. Medicine, certain setup things will be very procedural, but uh, investing is a little bit less like that. So, so there are areas I still think checklists can be very, very helpful, but perhaps the utility is not quite as clear or high, and so that's why I don't think it's been a widespread thing. But, but you know, whenever we did thing in our, you know, in my investment firm, we always developed checklists to make sure that we were doing things methodologically correct. Mm -hmm. I think just that step can be very useful for people. And, and that can at least let you go back and evaluate it more easily in the future. Absolutely. In terms of setting up that process, particularly, again, in terms of investing, a lot of it boils down to figuring out what matters. So in your experience, what does matter for investors? Is it are there particular numbers that matter more than others? Should investors be listening to conference calls, reading mm -hmm. press releases? What is it that does matter? Yeah, I think that the number one thing I would always say to everybody, and I, I, I think this is the biggest mistake that people make, mm -hmm. is to always focus on the distinction between fundamentals and expectations. Mm -hmm. And these are two very different things. If you want to say fundamentals will be value and expectations will be price, right? Mm -hmm. So, and these are very distinct things, and I think great investors understand they're distinct. So let me use, for example, a very easy metaphor to, to make this more clear. So if you're a, a handicapper, you bet on horses, right? There are two things that are relevant. One is the odds in the tote board. And those odds express very directly and clearly the probability of the horse's success in that mm -hmm. particular race. The second thing is the fundamentals, which is how fast the horse is going to truly run in that particular race. And that would be you know, the horse's prior track record, the track conditions, the jockey, and so on and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. Now, it turns out if I tell you the winner of any race, it doesn't make you money, right? Because if it's all priced in, right. it doesn't make you money. So the way you make money in horse racing is finding differences between expectations and fundamentals, what the odds and tote boards say, and how fast the horse can run. Mm -hmm. So that, that mindset can translate right over to the world of investing. So the key question you're always asking is, what's reflected in the stock price, and is, is the reality gonna unfold in a way that's different than that? So mm -hmm. all the things you described, certainly numbers help, can, can help you give you some guidance on that. But just be clear, the investment community is replete with noise as well. Lots of idle chatter, lots of talking heads mm -hmm. that really don't make that much of a difference. So if you sort of stick to this, my main thing is fundamentals versus expectations. When are, when are expectations running way ahead of what's likely to happen or way behind? Mm -hmm. Those, I think, end up being the most fruitful investments. And the last thing I'll say on that, it is often the case that when everybody's euphoric, you're the one, you should be the one that's more you know, concerned. And you know, as Buffett said, and when, and when everybody's scared is when you should be a little bit more optimistic. And, and that's a very, very difficult thing to do emotionally. Mm -hmm. right? Intellectually, maybe you can do it, but it's very difficult to do emotionally. So, right. so to me, those are the fundamentals of expectations and then sort of getting into the mindset of saying, I'm going to try to try to do it different than everybody else is doing. Now, now I've got to ask this, since you, you brought up uh, horse racing, <laughs> I, I've, I've, done, I've done a little bit of that. I lived in Las Vegas. You have to. I feel like you have to. Uh, one of the things that, I, that I've read is that um, because of the way the betting happens uh, on the horse tracks, 
going into the exotics where there's more uncertainty, uh, there's more potential for, for money to be made versus just betting a straight win bet or show mm -hmm. bet or something like that. Mm -hmm. Taking that over to, to investing, is there reason for investors to go beyond just buying a stock, going into options, going into stuff that's more exotic uh, to, to look for better opportunities? Mm. Super interesting question. And by the way, I was looking at this uh, not too long ago, and in the 1970s, it was like 75% of all bets were win, place, show bets. Mm -hmm. So they're sort of, as you said, plain vanilla bets. Sure. And that's really changed quite radically in the last 20 or 30 years. Now most bets are exotic bets. But there's an interesting feature about exotic bets that's important to underscore, is that even when you make those successfully, you lose a high percentage of the time. Mm -hmm. But when you win, you win a lot. So it's this very different payoff scheme, which is you lose, 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 and then you make a lot. And psychologically, that's very difficult for people to deal with, right? So, and I think for the average person, it's very difficult. So you, I think the sharp handicappers can make a living betting exotics, but it's very difficult for the average person, mm -hmm. uh, average handicapper. Moving over to the world of investments, look, I, my attitude is for most investors, keeping it simple makes the most sense, right? Which is having a diversified portfolio that's relatively low cost and rebalancing. Mm -hmm. you know, those are things that actually probably make most sense for most people. Now, if you have a little, you know, if you have time and attention and some proclivity to do this, you might be able to use some sort of uh, strategies that are, you know, option strategies or so, so forth. But, you know, for me, wandering too far away from that sort of core, I guess it depends what you want to do, but wandering too far from where that, uh, the, the payoffs don't seem to me to be uh, too exciting. So I would, I would probably... <laughs> stick, stick to stick the, to the it's, know, it's hard enough within it, just <laughs> it's hard enough and and again even following basic principles is hard enough you know one of the things i, I will say that you know I, the the statistic that i call it the most depressing statistic in investing is that you know you look at the market over the long let's say the last 20 years for the s p it's up about nine percent or so mm -hmm. and the average mutual fund is up you know i don't know seven and a half percent or so you know and the difference being primarily fees but the average investor's only earned about six percent, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, so, so and, and it doesn't seem to make sense at right. first blush. Six percent when they're investing in mutual funds, but the answer is, it's because of bad timing, right? They're putting money in at the top and they're pulling money out at the bottom. So you know, say six overnight, so they're earning called you know sixty to eighty percent of the market returns, and you compound that over a generation That's or two, huge. it becomes very substantial. So to me, if you say where are my opportunities, rather than saying oh I'm going to get fancy with exotics, it's saying hey I'm going to try to get rid of that you know, behavioral mistake and, and that 150 base, 200 per, two percentage points of performance, and by staying the course, get much closer to the market's rate of returns and mm -hmm. let that compound. And that's gonna be a much more fruitful, and I think much more powerful way to, uh, to get to your financial objectives. Okay, it, that, that, compound, that compounding notion is so huge. Buffett loves to talk about that. And I was, I was looking back over the, the last 100 years of returns the other day, and uh, I wasn't thinking, and I, and I did the calculation without adding back dividends, and I kept going over the numbers again and again <laughs> and saying, this just doesn't look right, this looks way too low. I added back in the dividends, and it was, it was much larger. The, the effect of dividends over the past 100 years has been huge. Now, is that because they're dividends, or is that, uh, is that just a capital allocation decision that the returns would have been relatively the same regardless? So Matt, this is a huge question. I think a lot of people are very confused about this concept, right? So just to be clear, as you point out correctly, if you look at the returns for the market, say the S&P 500 over the last 100 years or so, it's probably been on a real basis, that mm -hmm. means after inflation, sort of six to 7% range, right? Mm -hmm. But if you take it before dividends, it's something like one or 2%. So it's a massive difference. But 
let me say, I'm going to say this, make sure I say this correctly. If your goal is capital accumulation, mm -hmm. right, which is gathering lots of money, the only thing that matters is actually capital appreciation. Mm. So if your goal is capital accumulation, the only thing that matters is capital appreciation. Let me, let me try to unpack that a little bit. You have a stock that trades at $100 a share and it pays a $3 dividend. What happens, right? Well, the day it goes ex-dividend, you now have a $97 stock mm -hmm. and $3 in cash in your dividend, right? So what you need to do then is take, if you want to keep, you have to reinvest that dividend back in to make it $100 again. Mm -hmm. So as a consequence, if you keep reinvesting your dividends over time, it is the price appreciation that accumulates your capital, sure. right? Now for those, that comparison of reinvesting dividends and not reinvesting dividends, there's something we leave out of that, which is people can consume, right? Mm -hmm. So in other words, if you, the difference between 6% is because I'm consuming, so I'm getting money and I can go spend the money, right? So there's utility in that. So that's really not such a fair comparison. The point being, and I think this is a big point, is very, very few people own, ever earn total shareholder returns, right? First, most people don't reinvest their dividends. Second is there's tax on dividends. And third is going back to our behavioral mistake. So the question is how do I get as close to like possible of earning the total shareholder return from the market? And the answer is automatically reinvest your dividends, do it in a tax efficient fashion, and you know, dollar cost average or have some way to be invested methodically versus you know, getting emotional and pulling money out and putting money in at peaks and valleys. So then it's it, looking at a specific company, it's not necessarily a bad thing if they don't pay that big dividend. And I guess that partially goes back to what you're talking about, about investment opportunities within a company. It's a great point, Matt. So that's the thing. So if they're not paying a dividend or buying repurchasing shares, what are they doing with the money? And if they're investing it at a very high rate of return, more power to them. That's, like what, we, that's what we want, right? So that's, but if they can't, then it's, it's perfectly reasonable and I think even appropriate and maybe responsible for them to give the money back to the shareholders. Mm -hmm. The reason is, of course, you in turn can take that money and invest it in something else if you so choose. By the way, buying back stock is tantamount to paying a dividend, right? Because you can sell, if, if, by the way, it's interesting, when a company buys back their stock, if you do nothing, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's actually an active decision, right? Because you're effectively increasing your ownership stake in the company. So you can create an, you know, a synthetic dividend by selling the, the same proportion of what as they're buying back. So you'll have a little cash and you'll still have the same proportion of the company, right? So, so then you, you can take this money, you can reinvest it or do what, whatever you'd like. So, so there is, the, but that is an important consideration in the buyback dividend debate is, does the company have investment opportunities that they should be funding or not? And by the way, the, the, some of the problems we have, some of these companies that are earning so much they're building up these huge cash balances, right. you know, they can't even find things to do with the money. Sure. So some of these big technology companies as an instance. So would the, I mean, just spitballing, would the right thing be for them to start distributing that if they, if they don't have the, the place to put it? I, I think the answer is yes. So, and I, and I think there's been a lot of pressure for them to do that. So slide the money back into the capital markets and let the capital markets reallocate it, right? So if you can't do something with it. And the idea there is that markets are pretty good at figuring this stuff out. It's not perfect, clearly, but pretty good at this. And so if there are, the question is, you know, this company that's sitting on a lot of cash, is there an investment opportunity that's being starved now as a consequence? If that sure. money went back in, you know, so, so I think for the, from a system-wide point of view, that discipline of returning cash to the capital markets makes, makes enormous amounts of sense. Okay, now, finishing off from a very, very big picture perspective, skill versus luck. Uh, in thinking about investing in terms of investing in stocks as pieces of paper, the things that trade back mm -hmm. and forth every day, and versus businesses and, and evaluating a business, evaluating the fundamentals, reading all of your work, it seems like there's no competition between the two. 
no competition. So you want to clearly be the person who's thinking about a stock as a percentage ownership of a company, of mm -hmm. a business, right? And you really want to say, you know, I'm a proprietor of this business, how do I think about it from that point of view? And so that requires you to think carefully about the business itself. It requires you to think carefully about the prospects for that company, the competition for that company, and ultimately the economics of the business. So uh, you get little, you get much less focused on the day-to-day -day movements of the little ticker symbols, and much more focused on is this company building value over time with some confidence that that value will be ultimately reflected in the stock. So you get away from the day-to-day -day noise, focus on the build, on the business, and focus on value creation. I think it's a, it, it extends your time horizon, which mm -hmm. I think is very healthy, and it gets you to focus on the real right drivers of, of value. Great. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Matt. Thanks. That's our show for today and for the week. As always, you can find us on Twitter at TMF Financials and on Facebook, Motley Fool Financial Sector. And while you're at it, shoot us an email, WTMI at Fool.com. We'll see you on Monday. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.